Now, have you ever thought there might be something out there? It's a lot of rain at the moment. Well, it's 30 years since Suffolk became the focus of world attention for UFO experts after mysterious sightings in Rendlesham Forest. And today, retired American servicemen have been speaking about the encounter. Malcolm Robertson has more. Ladies and There are those who continue to pour scorn over claims of UFOs and aliens in Suffolk. But there are also others who believe something extraordinary happened in 1980 and that strange goings on are still taking place today in Rendlesham Forest. Malcolm Robertson, Anglia News, Suffolk. Well, who knows any? Right. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> <laughs> now, when schoolgirl Heather Doyle from Norfolk entered a cartoon competition, she probably didn't expect to see the end result on television. But that is exactly what happened. Heather from Long Stratton has just seen her creation aired on the CITV channel. Right, we're all sitting comfortably. Jim Rice can tell us more. This is the story of a little girl who made a cartoon and ended up on television. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, no comparison, my friends. This is Tim Banal with another edition of BOA Audio Season 8, this time once again coming at you live. And I'm thrilled to be welcoming back our good buddy, Peter Robbins. I've, I've been itching to get you on the live show for a while now, but I kind of timed it here with the big uh, event coming up in Lemonster, Peter. But I've been really itching to talk to you and had to hold my tongue here the five minutes before we got started uh, on the live show because there's so much I want to talk to you about. So welcome back to the program, Peter Robbins. Of course, he's the author of Left at Eastgate with Larry Warren. He's an acclaimed UFO researcher, author, lecturer. He really is in the trenches of UFO studies and it really, if, if somebody asked me who I wanted as a representative of the UFO field, he'd be at the top of the list. He's just a five-star ambassador for UFO studies, so I can't wait to talk to him. Peter, welcome back to BOA Audio. Oh, thank you, Tim. It's great to be back on the show with you. Now, what's, what's been going on since the last time we heard from you? I know you, you, you're really fresh off the plane, pretty much. You just were, were over in Rome doing a big, uh, a big speaker presentation there, but what else yeah. has been going on since we heard from you? Well, um, last month uh, I took part in what I think is a really unique and uh, important conference, Experiencers Speak, in mm. uh, Portland, Maine, which kind of violated all of the basic format for conventional UFO con um, conferences, namely having people like me and uh, different colleagues as your speakers and occasionally including a well-known abductee like uh, Travis Walton or something. Um, this conference and the uh, more modestly put-together one that we had last year in uh, Maine um, was just the opposite format. Um, this year, myself and Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin, who, of course, uh, will be joining me uh, later this month in Lemonster, um, were the UFO speakers. And every other presenter, and there were more than a dozen of them, were um, experiencers and abductees, and it was a remarkable weekend. Yeah, that's pretty different. You really don't see too many uh, conferences sort of dedicated to that theme nowadays. 
No. Um, there have been a number, especially on the West Coast, mm, yeah. uh, more toward the new age leaning of, you know, positive experiencer kind of conferences and, again, mixed in with more new age thinking. Um, this one, I thought, uh, is a format whose time has really come, and I, I hope it becomes an annual conference and that we see more like it. Um, uh, among the best-known people who were speaking was Travis, who returned um, along with um, a buddy of his who will also, I understand, be joining us uh, in Lemonster. Mm, yeah. um, uh, Steve did an amazing job of kind of um, being Travis's foil and talking about the impact that being in that truck that fateful uh, day in 1975 and seeing his friend, you know, get out of the truck to um, kind of goof around under this disc, this large glowing disc, and then have second thoughts about it. But before he could get back to the truck, be knocked to kingdom come, and um, you could sense so deeply in the presentation um, how the trauma, to a degree, had followed him through all these years. Uh, also, Debbie Jordan Cavill, one of my very favorite people in ufology, uh, who was the subject of Bud Hopkins' best-selling book, Intruders, um, gave a rare public appearance, and right from the heart, um, two other uh, true favorites of mine and true heroes of mine, um, Jim Weiner and Charlie Fultz of the Allagash incident, yes, uh, yeah. two of four guys who were abducted from a canoe um, on a trip in northern Maine, gave a brilliant presentation, um, and then lots of ones who were maybe known to their friends or a small circle of people or who have come out to some degree um, also gave very compelling talks. Um, I guess the main thing I, I was involved in before that was the April and May um, citizens' hearings on disclosure. Yes, I saw uh, you. Brilliantly uh... organized by Steve Bassett at the National Press Club in Washington, which was uh, um, maybe as close as we're going to get to having a congressional investigation. Um, Steve had invited and offered to pay very well a number of serving congressional representatives or senators. Nobody had the courage to do it. And I don't expect we'll ever see these weasels um, have that courage within <laughs> you know, our lifetime. They're too uh, busy tanking the country. They don't have... <laughs> uh, yeah, they're very busy right now, uh, screwing <laughs> us all over. Um, but um, what he did, I guess, was the second best thing. He hired six former congressional representatives and a retired senator. And from nine to five or six, uh, for five days in a row... Um, they vetted groups of us. Um, we swore to tell the truth and were questioned in great detail about our areas of specialty. It was a remarkable event and, again, brilliantly well handled and organized. Nice, nice, yeah. To shoot, to jump back to that experience or speak, yeah, it's amazing. The, there's quite an interesting sort of grassroots uh, movement going on yes. behind uh, Audrey's work there uh, with the Experiences Project. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And... Um, Behind so many conferences, uh, not like the big MUFON Symposium or uh, the terrific International UFO Congress, which is uh, uh, now under the guidance and leadership of the Open Minds Organization, so many events have one or two or maybe three people who are just working their butts off yeah. and laying out their own money because it's something that they believe in. 
um, that they know is important and that they're willing to take a hit on if it's not a financial success, which is much more the case than not. Right. I've, um, I've been a part of some of these, the real passion projects for the people that, right. that put them out. That's right. And for me, um, it's something that whenever we can, we should lend um, our assistance and support to. Um, I keep remembering, no matter how well-known the individuals in the work or how little-known, we are all in this together, and there's really no room for prima donnas as far as I'm concerned. Uh, do your best work, do it whenever you can, and um, you know, fight for the truth wherever possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've told the story on the show a bunch of times how I went to that first X conference, and, and mm. th- there were a few prima donnas <laughs> in attendance. <laughs> Quite a few, and uh, you know. One guy who wasn't was Peter Robbins at the uh, hotel bar and, and sort of convinced uh, me that this this field was worth at least keeping an eye on still. Cause, uh, <laughs> it was great fun to meet you, and I, I think sometimes um, some of the best things that occur at these conferences um, do happen at the hotel bars after the fact. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's where you meet either some interesting characters or some lifelong <laughs> friends or both. Yes, exactly. So so I guess tell me a little bit about what was going on here in Rome, because I'm interested, because you, you do quite a bit of traveling uh, internationally for this kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, what what was the what was going on there in Rome, and, and sort of how did that come about? Well, this was a really special conference, and it was not a UFO conference. It okay. was um, a scientific conference devoted to the work and discoveries of Dr. Wilhelm Reich, mm. um, who's... Uh, findings on how energy functions are probably more misunderstood and more distorted and more derided than any major scientific figure uh, of the last several hundred years. Uh, Ask most people, and if they've heard of Dr. Reich, um, they've um, never read anything actually by him but just about him. And if they've read anything about him, it's often extremely inaccurate and distorted. I was introduced to his work when I was still a teenager, and it had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, Reich, very, very briefly, um, was Sigmund Freud's first assistant through a good part of the 1920s, and they parted ways in 1929 based on um, um, Freud's uh, theory that many, if not most, human neuroses are rooted in sexual problems, Um, or an inability. And what Reich had observed after six years of working in the Freudian method was no matter how they might appear to be uh, a social or work-related problem or the like, they really had a sexual basis to them, which was a bit much for Freud, but I think actually very accurate. Uh, He went on to pioneer extraordinary studies uh, across the board in the natural sciences because the thread that connected all of his work was how energy functions in the natural world. And so um, this conference, being devoted to Reich's work, cut across everything from um, cancer formation to childbirth to biology to meteorology to um, social political thinking um, to UFOs, specifically Hmm. because... In the early 1950s, Reich developed an extraordinarily simple but a very effective device which could literally move the atmosphere and properly employed had the potential to break droughts and shrink deserts. Uh, An amazing claim, but one that's been borne out repeatedly over the decades. Um, 
And the thing that really torpedoed uh, part of his scientific reputation toward the end of his life was the simple fact that when he employed this device in Maine and then in extensive field tests in 1955 in um, um, Arizona, when he'd use it, it attracted UFO activity. Oh, weird. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. And at a certain point, in fact, in October, I think, of 1954, he actually turned this machine on a UFO. uh, And it it started to wobble. It blinked. It um, got dimmer um, and ultimately disappeared. Wow. This happened repeatedly. But, of course, it sounds so loopy. It sounds so insane. Uh, and so self-aggrandizing um, that most scientifically-minded people and certainly the general public wrote it off as delusional, except for the simple fact that it was repeatedly, multiply witnessed, um, that the device itself did and continues to break uh, droughts around the world. Um, and one of our m- most interesting speakers was Dr. Jim DeMeo. Um, Jim runs a research laboratory not far from beautiful Ashland, Oregon, and he has um, a degree from the University of Kansas in this technology. Uh, how is that possible? And certainly the only degree of its kind in the world. It's that as an undergrad, um, he put this forward as um, his objective, and when asked by the university how they could uh, establish that, in fact, it had been effective, his simple response was that he was going to change the weather patterns in that part of Kansas decidedly for the better and to such a degree that they would not be able to deny that it had been responsible for this. Yeah. Well, over the years, um, I am occasionally invited to conferences on Reich's work. The last one was two years ago in Greece, um, some years before that in Oregon, New York City, uh, Nice, France, and... Um, I'm pretty much become the main uh, writer, researcher, chronicler of these events. So I gave three papers, um, Friday and Saturday and Sunday of the conference. Um, I think before I spoke, to the chagrin of a few of my colleagues in the audience who felt about my being part of the program, the way that a lot of the scientists who were most devoted to Reich's work when he died in 1957 felt about his UFO work. Right. Namely, it was not inaccurate. It was not unscientific. It was not um, unimportant. It just had its own major ridicule factor, and Reich's work already was being ridiculed, and their feeling was it was bad for his acceptance and the science's acceptance um, in the future. And I absolutely understand that dynamic, all the more reason that I worked very hard to produce three papers that I felt would uh, fill the bill, and audience response was really good. Uh, It was wonderful to see colleagues I hadn't seen in a long time make some new friends and get to see a little bit of the absolutely amazing city of Rome. What a perk that is. Yeah, that's that's an extra bonus for sure. Now, I I want to circle back to to these. So his technology this device it would it would attract ufos 
and I presume that it, the technology is still around in some form or fashion today. Has anyone sure sort is. of reapplied it in modern times to well, try to get that same effect? Um, if you were to see one of the devices, it looks something like um, a multi-barreled anti-aircraft gun, except that it does not shoot anything. And the principle that it operates on is so deceptively simple that a lot of people um, who might attempt to replicate it as an experiment never bothered because they just know, in quotes, that it can't work. It doesn't have an, a motor on it. It doesn't plug into anything. It's not filled with chemicals. It doesn't have a yeah. nuclear you know, apparatus or what have you. Um, best example I can give you is several years ago when I was in the Boy Scouts, um, <laughs> one of the things that we learned was if you get a bee sting, um, pack mud on it mm. because, you know, that cold, wet earth will make the uh, the sting feel better. In reality, that mud is full of energy and um it literally is drawing the toxin to the surface, speeding up the healing process. And it doesn't seem like it could be that way, but that is the way it is. Um, same thing that I, I learned at an earlier age, although I didn't understand the dynamics behind it, and I doubt my little Russian grandmother did either. <laughs> if um, one of us kids had um, you know, a pimple or uh, a boil or something, she'd cut a potato in half. And we'd hold that potato to it, and it would have the same effect. Really? In the same way, when Reich um, first experimented with this device in rural Maine, he aimed the pipes. Oh, the thing is that the pipes themselves are connected to empty industrial BX cable, like, you know, the big versions of the stuff that snakes its way through the walls of our houses with okay. wire in it. Um, the... In, Industrial BX is a wider diameter, and you pull the wires out, and you throw the end of the cables into a well or into moving water or into a pond, which acts as a, as a grounding and as an attractor. And what he did very simply was start to move moisture-rich um, atmosphere air from the Atlantic Ocean over Rangeley, Maine where it displaced the kind of dead, stale air that was um, moisture-deprived. And after a fashion, it rained. And when they did field tests um, in 55 in Arizona, they specifically chose an area outside of Tucson because it was about as dry as any part of America had ever been. It had rained five inches in five years, and over the past 50 years, very modestly. And, um, yes, UFOs were attracted to the area. Uh, they were observed not just by the scientific team working with Dr. Reich, but also by a lot of local townspeople, et cetera. Um, and they broke every weather record in the history of Arizona by the end of that um, operation. Oh, boy. Well, we yeah. need somebody in ufology to... to put one of these things together and get out in the field and see if it'll work or something, well, you know? Because um, the, the problem with UFOs is the repeatability thing. So if we have yeah. something that may actually attract them, that would be like, that would be, you know, the Rosetta Stone almost. Yeah, what what Reich deduced was that um, there was something about the energetics of this very simple uh, device, um, obviously that attracted them to the area, but that their motor source 
may well also um, be based on harnessing the ocean of energy that we all live in all the time and are completely oblivious to. Um, I don't know anybody who theorizes that truly anomalous UFOs run on gasoline, coal, diesel, uh, wood, right. nuclear. <laughs> um, the motor source, of course, is of tremendous interest to world governments, and um, logic would suggest that it is uh, unconventional, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting stuff. It's, uh, it is. You know, he sounds like a lot like, uh, well, obviously, he sounds a lot like Tesla, but I mean in the way that he's practically been sort of uh, erased from mainstream knowledge. You'd be surprised how few people, the the Tesla car and the Tesla band are more well-known than Tesla, so. Well, it's true. Um, There are some parallels between their lives, um, but their discoveries differed significantly. I I studied Tesla extensively like a lot of us students of the repressed, the unusual, the unknown, and <laughs> yeah. um, he was kind of a different sort of genius. Um, one of the things that always fascinated me about Nikola Tesla was his ability to visualize a device, and his were very complex and electrical, um, and not just visualize it, but visualize an exploded um, kind of schematic of all of the parts, even if there were many, many parts to within a tolerance of a hundredth of an inch or something. Um, and many of them, um, of course, he patented and as such had to um, you know, uh, draw out. Other ones he simply kept in his head. And those devices or the possibility of replicating them pretty much disappeared when he died in 1943 in New York. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, that whole, the whole Tesla thing is, is tremendous. Uh, yeah. You really wonder. It is. And it's it's also a, an incredible object lesson to all of us. Um, there was a point where George Westinghouse, building his little company called General Electric, was using so many of Tesla's patents that he basically threw himself on Tesla's mercy. Like Reich, he was something of an idealist, um, certainly a, a bit naive as to the way the workings of the world could come down on you and eat you alive. And what he offered Tesla, and Tesla accepted, was if he he said basically, if I had to pay you um, the royalties on your patents, my company, which is going to do so much good for humanity, will go out of business. Would you accept a one-time payment of $1 million? And Tesla said yes. Um, Had he been harder-nosed or uh, more informed or more sophisticated, or uh, more guarded uh, about um, George Westinghouse's uh, greed and desire to create devices that could be metered and charge everybody in the world money rather than create a free energy grid sort of system uh, where we would all draw energy from the great ocean of energy around us. Um, One wonders how different the world might be today had Tesla had a great crew of advisors and technicians around him and that they took his devices and discoveries in a very different direction. Same for Reich. Well, it's the it's the maverick scientists that really, uh, I guess they just kind of go on their own, you know, and they yeah. don't have... It's probably, in a, I can imagine it's probably difficult <laughs> to be the second-in-command or helper or best friend of the maverick scientists because it may yes. be not as easy to deal with on a, on a <laughs> day-to-day mm. basis. 
Um, now, I, I, as I mentioned to you before we started the show, I really, I'm sure we did this when we first talked way back in season one, and and, and you know, obviously, well, I hope I've improved since then. So <laughs> eight years later, um, but I want to revisit the, the Peter Robbins origin story. How did how did an artist in New York City get mixed up with the UFO phenomenon? And it's been you know 30 plus years now. So yeah. you know, how did it all happen? How did this how did this connection become? Um. Very quickly, um, by the time I was in my late 20s, I was really living the dream I'd had since I had been a kid. I was um, quite gifted as uh, a very young artist. Uh, by the time I was eight years old, I was studying oil painting privately. Uh, you know, I was the big fish in my little pond in art class uh, growing up um, in, in New York and on Long Island. And... Um, went to university for a few years, studied art, then went on to the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, where I graduated with a degree in um, painting and film history. Uh, two years later, I started teaching there. And again, by my late 20s, I was um, selling work here and there. I had a cool loft down in East Chinatown. Um, I was, again, living my dream. And one afternoon, I was at home in my loft. I was going through a number of drawings that I had, um, much to my surprise, received <clears throat> from my grandmother. They were drawings that I had done when I was a kid that she just put away and to a degree, I guess, forgot about, then came upon and gave to me. Um, and there are several factors as to why this memory returned to me at that time. I think that was one of them. Some of these drawings did cover uh, the time from this repressed memory. Um, also, it was right after the Chinese New Year, and in the old days before <clears throat> Mayor Giuliani outlawed fireworks uh, <laughs> for Chinese uh, New Year. And, you know, the police just always used to look the other way. It is a thousands-of-year-old tradition, and little poppers are just not the same thing. Um, but it was like living in the DMZ for three or four days. You know, you didn't sleep. You'd walk out on the street and immediately smell cordite instead of Chinese food and <laughs> be kicking ankle deep through shredded paper. <laughs> and um, a memory returned to me from childhood, and it was um, overpowering. Uh, it was a memory of um, playing on the front lawn uh, of the house that I grew up in on Long Island with my sister Helen. Uh, on an absolutely cloudless late morning, uh, I think in June, uh, I was 14 and Helen was 12, and I caught some movement out of my right peripheral vision, um, called her attention to it, and we watched as five silvery-white disc-shaped objects, um, not highly reflective, definitely metallic, more like brushed aluminum than stainless steel, um, in a very precise military formation, close enough to make out regular detailing along the edge of which uh, of each, which we could only um, see or understand as windows or portholes or what have you. And it was a, a shattering experience for me. Um, we didn't say a word to each other. We looked and we looked and we looked. And I must say... In the intervening decades, I've probably interviewed several hundred people over the years who have described 
the same reaction that I remember having back then. I call it the checklist reaction. And it goes something like this. You look up and you see something completely anomalous in the sky and your rational mind just starts to go down a list of that's not a plane, a kite, a blimp, a balloon, a helicopter, a dirigible, a uh, strange-shaped cloud or reflection from the ground, <laughs> yeah. you know, debris in the sky, and at a certain point you just hit the wall. Right. And I was a very straight little kid. Um, at 14, I was not at all sophisticated. I was very leave-it-to-beaverish. Um, I was not into sports, with all due respect. Um, I cooked. I collected rocks and coins and stamps and bugs and any weird thing I could find. Um, (laughs) I read a lot of books. It may shock you to learn that I was a very short child at that time. (laughs) And, you know, basically just this nerdiest nerd in nerdville. Yeah. And I knew about flying saucers. You know, they were in the movies, the B-movies that were fun to watch. But I, I guess I deduced and accepted the adult attitude without anybody ever saying to me, flying saucers are silly, they're science fiction, they don't exist in reality. And there they were. I mean, no appendages, each one was like a dinner plate, slightly tipped. And it really was mind-blowing. So much so that I was clear that if I talked to any of my buddies about this, um they would laugh at me. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to be with the cool kids, you know, and I knew this was going to cancel my ticket completely. So it wasn't like you – so your your memory wasn't erased of the of the thing. It was just later when you looked at the pictures, you, you kind of felt maybe unburdened to, to well, look at it? The, I guess um, the dynamic <clears throat> was um, exacerbated by um, – that afternoon, um, I rode my bicycle to the public library. I took out two books on UFOs, um, got them home, brought them up to my room, closed the door, and I just grabbed them off the shelf. In fact, I, I can say uh, without hesitation they're the only two UFO books I've ever taken out of a library. I, <laughs> like a lot of us, I have a pretty good library of them myself at this point, and I was looking for something from the adult world, like a book, that would tell me that they were just totally explainable in conventional terms. And um, the books did not. In fact, one of them was um, um, Ademsky's Flying Saucers Have Landed. And I I just didn't want to know about that stuff. And I was so committed to not having to wrestle with this, that within a matter of weeks, I had basically pushed them out of my mind. Wow. Um, when the amazing. Yeah, when the, the, the memory returned, it was with a vengeance. And I don't even know if I had ever heard the term repressed memory syndrome or if it was a term that was being used in the later 70s. But all I know was that it upset me so much, I just kind of broke I mean, my first thought was, I know this is real. I mean, it's like this film strip playing in my mind now over and over and over again. How can anybody repress a memory like that? And um, after calming down, um, I decided there was only one thing I could do, which was call my sister Helen and um, find out if she shared that memory. 
I gave myself enough time to think over how best to do it, though, to know that what I didn't want to do, Tim, was to tell her what I remembered and hear her say yes or no. Yeah. And so um, she lived a mile or so north of me. I was, again, down in Manhattan's Chinatown. She was an aspiring poet in the East Village. And I asked her if it was a good time to talk and told her I had uh, remembered something from childhood that I thought was very important and wanted to know if she remembered the same thing. And then set the scene, what the weather was like, where exactly we were standing on the front lawn, about how far from each other. And she just started to laugh and said, stop, I know what you're talking about. This is 14 and a half years later. Mm. And she nailed it. And I had this very split feeling of, oh, my God, they're real. Oh, my (laughs) God, they're real. And then she said something to me I don't think I'll ever forget, which was, but there's more and you're not going to like it. And I said, well, what was that? She said, well, um, you know, we were standing there together. um, And at a certain point, I saw you kind of peel off to my right. But I didn't even turn around. I just knew you were running into the house to tell Mom, which was absolutely correct. Uh, at that time, I guess lunchtime was coming up, and we were scheduled to eat it. And she said, but within two or three seconds, the strangest thing happened, which was I watched a beam of blue light shoot out of one of these things. And my first thought was, that strange, because you can't see a beam of light in the daylight. And mm, yet yeah. there it was, you know, like a cartoon or something. Yeah. And I turned around, and I saw you in it. Oh, then boy. Then the light went out. Then you fell down. And the next thing I remember was I was being lifted off the ground, and the bottoms of these things were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, I'm listening to my sister tell me this, and my first reaction is, oh, my God, my sister's gone insane. And then <laughs> my second reaction was, wait a minute. Three seconds ago, it was okay to have five flying saucers hanging over the Parker's house, but now your sister's crazy. Um, I was rather unnerved by what she'd observed, um, although ironically, well, not ironically, in one of the three regressive hypnoses I did over the following years to see if maybe I was abducted or if any other memories rattled loose, one of the very few memories that came up in hypnosis that I didn't go in with a conscious recollection was everything going blue for a split second before everything went black. I I was knocked out. Oh, boy. Yeah. And that was something that I had to start living with. And um, I wasn't doing so well at first. Um, Number one, she then described to me what we would now call incredibly archetypical memories of abduction. Um, being on a metal table, being surrounded by, in her child's mind's eye, um, little doctors with big heads and big black eyes that spoke to her in her head. Um, And the things that they were saying were textbook examples of more cases that I've worked on than I can imagine. However, I had never heard of this phenomena. Um, Again, in the 70s, we... We knew something about the Betty and Barney Hill case, but UFOs were never an interest of mine, um, not even remotely. And so that stuff all bypassed me. And, you know, people say their life changed overnight. Mine changed in about 90 seconds. (laughs) And the first thing I had to deal with was 
what in the name of God happened to my sister? And what is this all about? And for that matter, what happened to me? Um, I resented more than I can say that for the first time in my adult life and most of my child's life, something more important than my career goal of being a painter um, or some kind of visual artist had displaced it. I really resented it. I, I continued to paint. I continued to teach. I continued to show my work. But the heart had really gone out of it. And after a number of years, I just acknowledged the fact and turned more and more of my full attention to studying this phenomena, ultimately starting to write about it, submitting some of my writing, getting articles published, and here I am all these years later. And um, I don't think I would be here for the good work that I've done without um, my dear sister's support and encouragement. And I know one of the reasons that I continue doing it, aside from the fact that I think I, I do make some important or good contributions to the work, and that it's important work, is it's a way of honoring my sister's memory. Uh, Helen died in January of 2000, and um, she was always ferociously uh, outspoken uh, about how serious this was and felt very much that it was part of her responsibility as a human being to help, edu um, to help educate other people to the seriousness and reality of this, as well as um, the importance and significance of it. That's tremendous. The, the 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 vividity of the of the experience that you and your yeah. sister had. I I yeah. have to wonder if the if the lack of memory, even though you you know you went out and looked into UFOs at the time yeah. after it happened, but you know, there well, had that to have been just some kind literally of that afternoon. Yeah. And as we continued to talk that afternoon, all those years later, Tim, um, I said, number one, how could this have happened? How could we have gone? Right. all these years without talking about it once. And Helen and I were extremely close. I've never met a closer brother and sister. Um, part of the reason was we were both artists. We had many of the same friends who were both cheerful pot-smoking insomniacs. Um, <laughs> you know, we were both writers. We edited each other's work. And ultimately, um, she said, well, that afternoon I asked you if you wanted to talk about it. And you looked at me and you said no. And you're my brother, I love you, I respect you, and one day led to the next month, led to the next year, and here we are. I also asked her if there was anything else that she could remember that would kind of underscore the reality of this for me. And she thought about it, and she said yes. That night after dinner, she had gone into my room, um, and she saw these two books on my desk, flipped through them briefly, and then went out. And that was incredibly important to me because I returned those books to the Rockville Center Public Library the very next day. And that is something I remember extremely clearly. What do you think that, what, what, why is that so significant to you that she checked out the books in well, that Well, what was significant to me, um, and it's something that um, was a very important lesson for me and what I was going to become, namely an investigative writer. Mm -hmm. um, the small details, um, the, the relatively mundane things that are kind of the connective tissue of, you know, large, amazing, paranormal things um, can be incredibly valuable. The fact that she recalled on this one night only of 
seeing these two books, and that was the only time she could have seen them, right, okay. um, just underscored for me um, how real that day had been and the fact that yet one more very minor memory of hers dovetailed with an action of mine. Right, I see. You know, yeah. those things, you get enough of them together, and that's what you build cases on. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, as we kind of established here, uh, you, you've been in this for a long time, and, and for the people I really respect as guests, I always try to get their advice for the next generation. So, you know, what would your advice be to people who are just getting into this now, who are taking up an interest in the subject and aren't sure, you, you know, where to turn or how to even proceed, especially yeah. in this new era uh, of, of ufology with the Internet and everything else? I guess, you know, what would what would your advice be to those folks? Yeah, well, great question, Tim. Um well, if you're getting into it for the money and the women, think twice about that. Exactly, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, first, whether it's UFOs or some other extraordinary subject um, that you're really passionate about learning more about, make sure that it is a subject that you find incredibly compelling. And for as long as you do, to whatever degree you can, you know, follow that path. But if you lose interest in it, certainly move on to another area. Um, within UFO studies, there are so many subdivisions. For example, um, there is the world of trace cases, um, physiological changes to organic and inorganic material that has come in contact with the UFO or crop circle or other anomalous phenomena. Um, there are witness-related cases uh, abduction, um, the actual historical government documents, and by dint of personality or you know just quirkiness, um, one or two of these areas may interest you more than other areas. Uh, I know people who have dedicated their lives in great part to um, Freedom of Information Act actions. Yeah. Um, Larry Bryant, a great senior researcher based in Washington, has been doing it for decades. I'm sure Larry has put together hundreds of FOIAs over the years, and um, that is where his passion drives him. Um, in the Internet age, you're faced with a double-edged sword. It still completely blows my mind that you know I can go to a search engine and type in the most obscure, arcane reference I can think of, and bang, two seconds later, all this information comes piling in at me uh, on this very unusual, rarefied topic. Yeah. Um, so much of the Internet, though, is good luck with that. Um, it's <laughs> not like a properly published book by somebody who worked for years establishing their credentials, either by dint of personal research or academic accomplishments, um, especially with visual materials. Um, we now live in an age where absolutely anything can be created on, well, what we used to call film, um, but digitally or a manipulated image that is so authentic-looking, um, either as a film clip or as a still, that... You know, you either have to believe it or not believe it. Hmm. Uh, for me, I had kind of a, a personal epiphany 
God, how long ago is that? The, is it that Jurassic Park came out? Fifteen, twenty years, maybe more. Something like that. Yeah, fifteen yeah, or twenty probably, years. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. somewhere in there. Um, I was lucky enough to see it originally in the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, which has the widest screen and the best sound system, uh, the best projector. And there is a moment in that film, and just about everybody listening, I'm sure, has seen it, where um, Laura Dern and Sam Neill are attending to, um, they're on their way to attend to some dinosaur, I think, uh, and the John Williams score comes up, and they look up, and there are the brontosauruses grazing. And I sat in the theater at that moment, and I swear to God, for a split second, less than a second, I actually found myself thinking sincerely, holy moly. And I didn't think moly. <laughs> I thought, Jesus Christ, the secret of this film is not that digital technology is at a point where they can create imagery like this. They found the island where the dinosaurs live. <laughs> And then I caught myself and um, returned to being an adult and thought somewhat wistfully, you know, I can never, ever trust another filmatic image I see again because we can do anything now. And people often contact me and say, what do you think about, you know, that video clip from Turkey or oh, Jerusalem yeah. or Russia? And more, as often as not, I have to say I don't know what to think of it. Um, it looks good in that, you know, it's not, it doesn't look too good to be true, but yet we don't have, you know, a fully vetted statement from the person that shot it or the person that's with them or an analysis of the film that we're looking at. It's just one of a gazillion, you know, um, YouTube postings right now or something, you know, on a link that's going viral. Uh, on the internet, um, it's one of the reasons why I find pre-digital UFO photographs and footage uh, more compelling in a way. Oh yeah, it, absolutely. It's yeah. much more difficult to have faked that stuff, and the fakes, man, they usually stand out like sore thumbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what? If they don't stand out, you can take like a ten-power um, loop or magnifying glass. And you can often see the cut paper edge of where something was glued down. Um, you know, the technology is not that hard to crack. Right. It's like a double-edged sort of modern technology. You can yeah, yeah. filter all the I, I would also say um, for anybody serious about coming up in this work, um, don't do what I've done for years, which is, well, unless you are a person of truly independent means or have had a business career uh, that has been successful enough, that you can devote yourself to um, these undertakings without worrying about how you're going to earn a living. Um, this is what I do for a living, and um, it's not a great way to uh, make money, but it is extremely rewarding work. And again, as we were discussing earlier, some of the perks in terms of places that you're able to visit, either in investigations or conferences, and more, um, some of the amazing people I've gotten to meet over the years, um, people who have enriched my life more than I can say, become dear friends um, in the world of investigators, experiencers, abductees, people you just meet along the way. Um, you know, nobody told me I, I should do this. This is totally my own decision. Um, 
build a library. Um, I mean a real library of whatever your research specialty is going to be. Uh, the written word is an amazing thing. Again, so many people are in an age where, you know, they've got their e-reader and their wonderful things. Um, they communicate digitally with everyone. Um, they live in a different world than the one that I was brought, brought into. Uh, at the same time, this stuff is very valuable to me as well. But there is no substitute for a real library yeah. um, that you can draw on for research, that you can check facts or at least compare facts uh, from established published sources and not just somebody who posted something on the Internet. Um, I would say if you're interested in writing about it and you're not a writer, do what I did and simply start to write. I didn't tell anybody I was writing for a year. I just started to write. And in my case, I began with just childhood memories, um, trying to describe things to myself in an effective way, um, not really worrying about what your style is going to be. Your style is, you know, the way you communicate. Right, that just um, comes up naturally as you yeah, write more. Yeah, and never, ever um, let... You know, fear of rejection stand in your way. Otherwise, nothing would ever get done. The worst anybody is going to say if you submit an article and doesn't get published is no. And most of us can deal with that very well. Um, always tell the truth. Uh, hold yourself to a very real code of personal ethics. And if you screw up, either if you fudge it at some point or you don't hold yourself to that code at some point or you make a simple error, and in the process of doing that, you publish something that's inaccurate. Don't tough it out like a lot of my colleagues do. Go out of your way to let people know that you made that error. And um, whatever is appropriate, either by correcting it or apologizing to somebody that you may have wronged in the process, is always the right thing to do. Never feel awkward about trying to make contact with people who you admire. And I think back, you know, 25, 30 years, uh, some of my heroes were people like Stanton Friedman and Timothy Good and Len Stringfield and um, Dr. Hynek. Um, and I met all of them. Um, and in some cases, they became friends. Um, as far as Bud Hopkins goes, um, I was particularly fortunate. Um, Bud and I met in 1977, which was 76 or 77, about five years before he published his first book, what drew us together was his interest in UFOs went back about a year before mine. And um, what really united us, though, was our love of painting, hmm. um, art history, New York, literature, politics, uh, literature. Um, we were friends for 35 years, and I worked for him as his assistant more than half that time. And that was one of the great privileges and adventures of my life. Um, but never feel awkward about trying to make contact with people that you admire in public life. Once again, worst that's going to happen is you won't hear from them, or you know they may be a jackass, but much more often than not, um, they may remember somebody being there for them when they were just starting out and be happy to, uh, you know, um, 
communicate and be there for you and exactly. uh, bounce ideas off of and uh, be a mentor. All fantastic advice. I, I recognize some of these steps in my own evolution as a mm-hmm. researcher and broadcaster. So, yeah. you know, don't be afraid to – people always ask me, what you know, how do you get Stan Friedman on the show? It's like, <laughs> I just called him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, don't be afraid to uh, get out there. And the only other thing would be maybe develop a thick skin because this is a subject that, you know, not only contains its own slings and arrows of infighting, but also you got to deal with people on the outside who don't don't understand uh, your interest in this subject. Well, you're absolutely right, Tim. And you can do that without becoming insensitive. Um, If you are attacked... Uh, often the attacks aren't even worth responding to. I call them ankle biters. They're just, you know, mean-spirited people or frightened people more often than not who have a need to um, attack what you have said or written because it makes them extremely anxious. And if that is ineffective, to attack you personally. Um, A lot of people in this work like me very much, but you would be surprised um, how nasty some of the um, attacks on me have been, and very recently, um, and by people in the work. Um, and, you know, you just deal with it. When you do address it, though, never generalize. Always be really specific. And um, if they have said X, Y, and Z, you know, even though you may have to take X number of hours that you would rather devote to something else, If it's important enough to you, do not hesitate to come back at them. But always, while fighting hard, fight fair. Hmm. Um, Never let yourself be pulled down to the level of, you know, second graders going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, um, upping the silliness and and just the nasty expletives. Um, Be specific. Do your best to stay above the fray, but never um, flee or, or feel that you shouldn't. Uh, come back at somebody if if they are, you know, uh, saying something untrue about you or distorting your work or, um, you know, just general jackasses. Yeah, exactly. You sometimes you just can't help but run into those people. <laughs> you really need to try and avoid them, I guess. Um, now, I wanted to talk to you about the citizens hearing on disclosure uh, yeah. because, as I said, I saw you as a part of that whole thing. And it and, uh, wasn't the last time we talked, but it was the one prior to that. You had just put out the paper that you wrote about religious concerns surrounding disclosure. Yeah, it was actually a paper, um, I think the original draft was called Politics, Religion, and Human Nature. And then the subtitle was To the Effect of Roadblocks in the Way of um, Public uh, Revealing of Information Around this Subject, i.e. Disclosure. I think, yeah, um, you said you purposely didn't use the word. Yeah, it was sort of an experiment. Um, um, the word disclosure, I, I certainly um, a- am not as dogmatic about right now. It's a perfectly good word, and there really are um, no synonyms for it. So it's, it, you know, you always have to come up with different phrases. But I felt that it was heavily associated with, you know, one area of the movement that I was not. Um, Uh, very fond of. Um, It was sort of a personal exercise coming out of my readings and chats with people who exercised a fair amount of concern 
um, and resistance, and in some cases, absolute dogmatism that um, they wouldn't even be interested in looking at this as a reality because if it were true, it would challenge too many of um, their beliefs as far as religion goes. And if a crack developed in the wall, and for me a perfect example is uh, a very famous uh, part of the New Testament, uh, Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel is a, a simple shepherd. He's minding his flock. And lo, out of the heavens comes a wheel within a wheel of the appearance of burnished beryllium. And it's nothing gossamer-like or angelic. It comes down. It kicks up all kinds of sand. And out of it comes an angel. Now, the word angel, the first uh, usage we have of the word is in ancient Sumerian. And it doesn't have anything to do with religion. It's a word that would be um, just as useful in the halls of power. Um, it's a go-between, an emissary. Yeah. Um, this particular angel is also encased in metal, and its head has four kind of animal depictions on each side of it, like a very, very intense helmet of some sort. And there, you know, uh, a rapport and exchange is struck up, and there is a relationship that is established between Ezekiel and this being. Now, let's just say, for argument's sake, that the entire Bible was, you know, true stories written by God with his giant fountain pen, um, or, you know, uh, written by contemporaries of that time as honestly and as best as they could. I, I personally feel the Bible is a mixture of many things, including recycling of earlier myths, uh, morality tales, uh, analogies, uh, allegories, etc. But let's just say that the description we find in Ezekiel is a misinterpretation of a genuine visitation of a craft of um, certainly uh, advanced dynamics um, piloted by intelligences from parts unknown coming and going with impunity, for reasons we can only make educated guesses at. If such a thing were true, for some people, um, it would be incredibly upsetting. It would suggest that other parts or references or stories in Judeo-Christian tradition or other world religions uh, may have been just that, a misinterpretation or misunderstanding, very understandably, of a visitation. Um, and this is something that impacts on people of every religion if they're fundamentalist. And the word simply means inflexible in your interpretation of dogma. Hmm. Um, I think most people of faith have a certain latitude about them. And I think after a lot of study and a lot of interviews, I'm convinced that, you know, if disclosure were to come, and if it does, I, I don't think it's going to be something that comes from the United States government. I think, if anything, they're going to do everything they can to do what they've always done, which is not a damn thing right. to get any closer to this, unlike uh, many other governments who have been a lot more forthcoming. Um, I think that most people of faith are going to you know, have a dark night, but think about it. I mean, if they're is this life coming and going from 
another planet, another universe, another dimension, another star system, another galaxy, or all of the above, which I think is probably as likely, um, doesn't that underscore the vastness of creation in the universe? If anything, it should serve as um, a confirmation of if you are a person of faith, of you know God's presence at the furthest corners of the cosmos, or if you're a secular, secularist, um, that the miracle of creation in terms of the way many of us see evolution is also um, potentially out there. And I, I don't know, it was only the past few years that stats were published that among even very conservative astronomers, um, it is admitted that there are some millions of planet-sized objects about the same distance we are from our sun to similar-sized stars, at least giving voice to the premise that, you know, that primordial chemical biological soup that resulted in the first paramecium's and amoeba and simple one-celled creatures, or that first thus spake Zarathustra, God's finger on the water, and life began, depending on your point of view. Um, but, yeah, um, it's a paper I'm really proud of and one that was in my mind uh, earlier this year when um, I was in Washington for this amazing series of hearings. Red Sox trailing 5-1, to one and Poppy gets in. And the big right-hander, Benoit, delivers. Swing and a high deep drive in the right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Tory Hunter went up against the wall, running pell-mell up against the fence, and then went tumbling into the Red Sox bullpen as David Ortiz has sent Fenway Park into a state of delirium. You talk about dramatic home runs in his career. <laughs> wow. What I'm driving at is, did you reconcile these concerns you had or, or um, you know, have they been resolved? Have you discussed this issue with, with some of the players, you know, on the disclosure side of the fence, if you will, and, and seeing uh, how they feel about all that? Again, great question. Extremely informally and not with any of the major players. Um, I have discussed it, though, with a lot of friends and acquaintances over the past few years who are religious, who go to church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday or their mosque or their Buddhists or what have you. And my consensus there it basically underscores what I said before, that, um, yeah, that would be wild, um, but it won't make me not believe in God. Um, it's something that maybe um, if the, the hearings had been set up differently and people like me were sworn in and just asked to ramble on about their various views on things, I certainly would have brought up. I was there specifically to speak on two subjects and answer questions for the congressional representatives. Uh, one was on the Rendlesham Forest incident, which for some people I'm best known for left at Eastgate, the 
book that I wrote with Larry Warren, mm -hmm. um, but also for another research specialty of mine that um, I've gotten very deeply into over the years, which is the origins of the ridicule factor. Um, it was something that I started to think about in the late 80s, um, and I think it is really important to understand, as, as important as the bigger questions that we associate with these intelligences. Basically, it's this, Tim. Um, if we knew each other socially and, you know, um, had nothing to do with UFOs, and one afternoon I said, hey, Tim, wildest thing happened to me uh, yesterday afternoon or last night. I looked up, and I saw this thing in the sky. I was not like anything I'd ever seen before. It was a different shape, or it moved in a way that it couldn't have been a plane or a helicopter. It didn't make any noise. It zipped around. You know, it was just weird. It was just wild, and I've never seen anything before it. Now, in another world, you would say, wow, that is weird, and I wonder what it was. But in the world that we live in, where we have been so brilliantly conditioned to associate this subject with um, delusion, um, you would see my mouth moving, but you would be thinking, gee, what's up with Pete? Um, <laughs> he used to seem like you know, a pretty straight-up guy. Does he want attention? Is he having a mental issue? Has he become a mystic? Is he a liar? Does he want to hoax me and embarrass me? Does he want to be on the Oprah show? I mean, what's up with him? <laughs> Wilhelm Reich had a great phrase called evasion of the obvious, and it reminds me of something my therapist said to me years ago, and my therapist had been Reich's first assistant for many years, uh, and he helped me to normalize my attitude about UFOs, having seen them himself. Uh, with Dr. Reich on one occasion and another occasion on his own, which was sometimes when you have a dream about a snake, it's a dream about a snake. Um, it, <laughs> the phenomena is the phenomena. Yeah. And yet our media and our government, from the get-go, uh, and I have read so much of the early coverage on this, including um, I'm probably the only person that you'll ever have on as a guest who has read every single article, editorial, uh, letter to the editor, um, front page piece that the New York Times has ever published on this, um, in part because I wanted the Times was arguably the flagship of Western print journalism in 47 and to a degree still is in this country. Yeah, so and, allegedly the paper of record, right? Exactly. And... They hit the ground running the first week in July. They didn't even bother to report on the alleged crash of something outside of a little town called Roswell, New Mexico. But a day or two later, their first article on the subject certainly touched on um, this crashed weather balloon. And I would say well over 95% of their coverage has always been sarcastic, condescending, belittling, explaining it away with pseudo pseudoscience, uh, offering up a variety of quote-unquote authorities, many of them unnamed, most of them astronomers or mental health professionals, and occasionally an article or a piece where they really are unable to muster all the requisite nonsense. Um, other newspapers picked up their cues from the Times, and the only other media really there was at the time was radio news, um, which also followed suit. And within a matter of weeks, it was simply understood that this subject should not be covered seriously. 
Now, I've got some theories about that. They're just educated guesses. But the bottom line is that although we're seeing more and more coverage that is rational um, in the you know more recent years, this is still the general reflex of major media. Um, you, it's very rare to see a newsreader, some talking head, giving a UFO report without some body language or you know wink wink nudge nudge or a little bit of a smile or putting a spin on the way that you report it like folks i just got to read this stuff but i think it's crazy too um and so yeah that's another research specialty of mine and one that um again i i think is important for folks to understand yeah it's ironic you uh you say that i mentioned here at the beginning we had the technical issues where we couldn't play the music and uh the the i like to overlay pop culture or relevant clips let's say into the music and this this one actually was a a news report on the anniversary of rendlesham and i managed to isolate sort of the end you know when the anchors come back from from the report and immediately dismiss it and start laughing and then quickly go into a story about a little girl who made a drawing that turned into a cartoon on tv (laughs) <laughs> and it was just so ridiculous. It was it was frightening in a way. It was like yeah. disappointing and, and frustrating. This is what we become. Yes. So you you kind of hit the nail on the head. It stood out for me uh, hearing that. Now, did you get a chance at the at the hearing to interact at all with these former Congress people, or were they kind of sequestered? Because I feel like if anybody, oh, you no. get the best read on on their. They were their great. Um, they were all really out there. I thought it was also very um, wise of, of Stephen Bassett to invite the participants, uh, ultimately based on a, a very fair mixture of um, political affiliations and whether or not they were men or women. It was pretty evenly split between those who had been elected as Democrats or Republicans or were men or women. Um, it was very interesting to watch them over the five days because um, most of them, you know, were, I don't know whether they were feeling a little defensive, but I think they felt there was a need for formality. They were there to do a very serious job that our elected officials had no interest or desire or courage to do, and they seemed to all take it seriously at the same time. As the days started to click by, there were moments when you're just watching their faces up there day after day, hour after hour, where you saw, you know, eyes get big, um, eyebrows go up, uh, people falling asleep in their seats, um, good questions, not so good questions. And then the last day or two, they revealing a great deal more about their feelings about this. The last day, a number of them said as much as... um, I always took this seriously. I always thought it was real. Um, I did have some insider knowledge, but I liked my job. I wanted to keep it. I I know how the game is played. I wasn't going to admit that I took this seriously. I understand the ridicule factor. And other ones who said, I I always thought this was a joke. Um, I never heard, you know, any serious account of it. All of them, I'm very proud to say, were uniformly impressed with almost every one of the presenters. I, I think they really expected the tinfoil hat brigade to be you know, assembled there. And the researchers, the writers, the authors, the investigators were overall top flight. The former government officials, um, very impressive. Um, 
the ones who I was most fascinated by were like fighter pilots, um, a number of them from South and Central America, some still serving, who had been ordered to, um, they were scrambled, they had been ordered to fire on UFOs. And as always seems to be the case when they did, if they did have that opportunity, you know, um, nothing happened. Yeah. Um, and this we, we see over and over documented um, over the decades. Um, the director of the largest UFO research organization in China gave very compelling statement. Um, we in the West still don't know that much um, until recently about what is going on in China relative to this, sub- to this subject. And one of the healthiest things is that even though it's not a huge percentage of their population, given the size of their population, there are quite a few million Chinese who are obsessed with this subject. Oh, yeah. And there are UFO organizations all over China, and many of them manned primarily by people with very technical, professional backgrounds. Um, you know, there are UFO conferences held in the country, um, there's a huge organization in Hong Kong. Um, it, we just got windows into so many worlds on this. But, yeah, I think um, the the congressional representatives and um, the retired senator, uh, Mike Gravel um, of Alaska back in the day, great guy, um, they all made themselves accessible. They tended to have lunch together. But at the breaks or after, um, you know, a day session had ended, um, they hung out and chatted with all of us. And um, they all left there with a very different attitude, I think, than when they came in. A number of them, including um, Senator Gravel, made it very clear that he was willing. I mean, he's retired now. He's got time on his hands and found this whole thing interesting enough to say, I'm with you guys, and if I can help you, let me know. Um, they'll tell you one thing. They all left with armloads of reading that will keep them busy for quite a while. Uh, you know, books from various presenters as well as reports, papers, monographs, you name it, um, DVDs. Uh, I think it was a life-changing experience for yeah. some of them. Dare I ask what the inside information one of them alluded to? No. Okay. Um, no. Uh, um, I'm, I, 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 that is something that uh, would be interesting to know. Um, one person said that they always thought one, one of the um, the women retired congressional investigators said she had heard of Roswell, but always thought it was a joke. Um, and you know what? Um, probably quite a few people do. We are immersed in this world, and it is, you know, one of the sacred cows, and certainly one of the seminal I- events, and you know, world famous and the like. And um, I actually um, thought I knew quite a bit about the case until 2007, when I was hired by the city of Roswell and worked for them for the next three years as a consultant and advisor on, um, in part, building what I called responsible UFO-related tourism. I was the liaison between the city and um, the uh, governor's office. Um, um, I helped to plan the conferences that they had every year. A very cool job, which um, I lost when the mayor, who I had worked for, 
was replaced by another mayor who I think is somewhat considerably more uncomfortable with the subject than Mayor Legron was. He's a great guy and um, really understood that no matter how individuals in this city felt about it, whether they felt that uh, you know this crazy story was making their town the laughing stock of the world, or whether something incredibly important had happened outside of uh, their city, um, that it's a world-recognized brand name, you know, to be dispassionate about it. And in these days where municipalities have to be increasingly original in their thinking about generating revenue, here's a way to educate people about a very important event at the same time to present it to young people in a way that's not intimidating and threatening, to, yes, allow it to be fun relative to, you know, their big celebrations. And for years, I that was something I had no interest in. UFOs are too serious to be dealt with in a lighthearted way. Yeah. And um, I learned differently in Roswell and also working with the good people of McMinnville, Oregon, who have a big conference and UFO festival uh, every year. It's fine to have fun with the subject as long as it's not mean-spirited or mocking exactly, or in any way derogatory. And there are ways to do that, no question about it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, those festivals are a good time. I mean, mm. it, it and, and it, I think it helps to bring people in who might be on the fence about whether they would want to go to an event like that. Do you know what I mean? I, th- I think you're right, Tim. It also is a natural extension of kind of the sociology of the thing. Let's face it. The idea of greys and abductions and UFOs from parts unknown have so insinuated themselves into Western culture, into pop culture, into entertainment, that it's hard to kind of unweave the fibers in a way. They are such a part of the world we live in, whether or not people feel they're, you know, sort of an invention and a goofy analogy for things or, you know, the undercurrent running just under the still waters of official history, which we know to be true and, you know, kind of define the schizophrenic world we live in to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Now, what? tell me a little bit about this new uh, magazine you're writing for, UFO Truth Magazine, mm-hmm. because you've sent me a, one of your pieces for it, and you, yeah. you take Stephen Greer to task for something he said. I do. So I, I really I respect that a lot, because you're, you're, willing, you're, you're willing to step on toes when the, when the toes need to be stepped on. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's a two-parter there. So tell yeah. us about the magazine, and then yeah. we'll get into the, the, uh, the article. Very good. Um, in... December of 2010, I was part of a small conference that took place in Woodbridge, Suffolk, East Anglia. That is uh, an area of England about 70 or so miles northeast of London. And essentially the location where the Rendlesham Forest is and where the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident of December 1980 took place. This was a small conference um, that marked the 30th anniversary of um, the events. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the speakers along with me was Gary Hazeltine. Um, Gary and I met quite a few years ago at the National Press Club for another UFO-related event. And um, a dear friend and colleague of mine, Jennifer Stein, 
kind of paired us up and said, have a conversation. You know, usually people just interview you at these things, but her idea was, I think, quite brilliant. She and her co-producer um, paired off investigative researchers, writers, authors, and just had them sit down and have a conversation. And after a minute or two, you kind of forgot that the cameras were on you. And Gary was somebody I had heard of but never met. He was um, a serving Yorkshire um, police detective. Oh, wow. Who, um, when he had been in the British military, was an MP and then served as a cop for years. And um, at a quiet moment, he sort of shared with me um, something that he wanted me to keep confidential, which was in a few years when he retired, which happened earlier this year. What he wanted to do was devote himself to creating an absolutely first-rate, um, bi-monthly UFO magazine. And um, not only did I, I think that was a great idea, but he wanted to base its look and feel and content on what I think was probably the best all-round, non-scholarly, you know, um, aimed at the general public UFO magazine ever published. And that was something called um, UFO Magazine. <laughs> Not to be confused with the American magazine of the same name. Right, this is the Graham Birdsall publication. That's right. Graham Birdsall, for uh, any of your listeners who are not familiar with that name, was the driving force in British ufology for years. Um, he was a big bear of a guy, uh, a ferociously smart character, uh, very driven, who had that rare combination of um, great research skills and a good business head. And he actually built um, a modestly successful business on this terrific magazine and a brilliant series of seemingly endless con conferences that he put together under usually the general banner of Quest International, and most of them... Uh, situated in his wonderful hometown of Leeds in the Midlands. Um, and we lost Graham, um, gosh, uh, is it nine or ten years ago? It's right? ten years, actually, because I was going to ask you, I had it here in the notes, uh, but you've already sort of yeah. given the remembrance for him, so yeah. come on. Graham was a dear friend, and I still remain close to members of his family. And in fact, it's the only funeral of a, a British friend I've gone over for, I uh, just love the guy, and I. I um... Anyway, Gary's idea really struck me as a good one, mm. and he asked me if, when he got it up and running, or in the process of doing that, if I'd be interested in writing a column for him. Um, it's all very low budget, and we would work with him, the contributors, until you know the magazine was really successful to uh, have it operate more or less like a business. And um, we are now coming into the third issue, which will uh, be published in the next week or so. Again, it's called UFO Truth. It averages almost 100 pages an issue. He's got a terrific uh, stable of contributors. And I do a column. And my only um, agreement with him was that I would be free to write whatever I wanted um, in my column. Um, this month, um, 
what we're doing is a number of us writers are devoting our columns to the Rendlesham Forest incident because although the events are um, now more than 33 and a third years in the past, the story actually broke internationally 30 years ago this month. Okay. And the reason for that is entirely really uh, to the credit of my dear friend and co-author, Larry Warren. And um, so I'm going to be writing about that this month. Um, It's a a subscription publication. The first issue can be downloaded for free. You can see samples of the other issues. And um, I think it's a magazine with a terrific future. I encourage anybody interested in the subject to subscribe to it, but at the same time to support some of the other great publications that are out there as well. Uh, I'm a big fan of Open Minds. I think it's the best magazine that we've had in many years on the subject here in America. Uh, I very much like um, the people that work for it. Uh, I think they're doing a great job overall. And um, UFO Truth just contributes to um, a quality news source. Again, magazines may seem a little dated in a way to a lot of folks because you can get immediate information in the moment by, you know, Googling or going to UFO-related websites. But for me, um, I like to see both. But I'm I really like a magazine format. In this day and age, you've got to have an awful lot of money to do a print publication. But um, this is sharp as attack online. I guess if you're obsessive, you can print out every page. (laughs) Um, But it is a great publication. I encourage all your listeners to at least check out that first pre-issue and consider subscribing. All right, yeah, they can find that at ufotruthmagazine.com. Now talk about this Stephen Greer uh, call out, if you will, yeah. so we can we can dig into this one because I have yeah. problems with some aspects of the disclosure movement. You kind of hit yep. the nail on the head, I think, pretty much with uh, what you wrote. So let's talk yeah. about it. Thank you. Um, my first column, um, I've written columns before, including for the American UFO magazine and a British publication called UFO Matrix and a number of others. And I thought, okay, I'm well enough known that. Um, Most people will know who I am with that first column, and why not just jump into some casework or whatever. And I thought, no, let me spend some time here and establish for my readers who I am, how I became interested in the subject, what my values are, how I proceed, um, the way I work, what my ethics are, etc. The second column um, was two-part. One part dealt with um, all oh, uh, a number of the events that were happening at the same time earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, over the summer and late spring. And a real pet peeve I have about um, Dr. Greer, who has done <clears throat> excuse me good work over the years, certainly with his first disclosure initiative at the National Press Club. Mm-hmm. That was important and historic. But, you know, um, Steve has a, a well-known well-organized organization called CSETI. I am just me. I am, (laughs) you know, an independent researcher and investigator. The views that I I publish in a piece like that are mine alone. And if my uh, publisher and editor shares them, that's fine. If he doesn't, um, this shouldn't be put on him. 
But I took Steve to task for something he does that drives me effing crazy. And he plays fast and loose with information sometimes, and it is not only not responsible, it is bad for the work, it's bad for the perception of ufology as a serious area of study, and it does not serve any constructive purpose. And what it was, was coming on um, a slightly dated interview with him where he said that he knew that the Earth was being visited by I think it was 68 civilizations from off-Earth. Yeah. And I just felt, you know, myself get really pissed off. First of all, I don't care whether you're Dr. Stephen Greer or the President of the United States or the Director of the NSA or, you know, somebody whose name we don't know who sits on top of all this information or an alien race. You cannot know the number that is for me empirically impossible um, it's not accessible it's total conjecture yeah. in fact it's nonsense and steve's basic response to that is um good question i wish i could tell you how i do have that number but it would compromise the safety of my source who is deeply embedded in American intelligence, or it might even, you know, affect your own safety, so I'm just doing this for, you know, your good and their good. <laughs> How nice I, of I don't buy it. I don't buy <laughs> yeah, it. I don't yeah. think he's telling the truth. I think he's a manipulator of facts, and that um, it really, really hurts us all when he or anybody else does that. Now, I sort of see this as different than interviewing somebody who is a genuine, let's say, abductee, who has had information put in their head, rightly or wrongly, in terms of whether it's authentic or not, um, but it is something that they take seriously and they believe, and their source was, you know, um, an abduction experience. Right, right. That's a whole different kettle of fish, if you will. I, it is for me. Mm -hmm. And, again... Um, Empirical fact is just that. Um, I'm really very well known for answering many questions on shows like yours or, you know, in question and answer forums at conferences by saying, I don't know, because I don't know. And 35-plus years in this field has brought me to a point where I'm reminded of a definition um, that's applied to um, a Zen beginner, which is knowing that you know nothing and having it be okay. Now, I know more than nothing about UFOs. In right. fact, I know quite a lot. But what I know represents very little in terms of what there is to know. And I can make better educated guesses than most people, but you know me, Tim, I do not confuse what I know to be absolutely true with what I personally believe but can't establish beyond a reasonable doubt, with what I think may be the case, with what I'm concerned or fear may be the case, or, or, or. I'm really careful about parsing those different departments, and we have a lot of colleagues, bless their hearts, who I think are well-meaning, but tend to 
jump to conclusions without showing their work. That's kind of my... That and just sort of not confuse, but mix their sincerest beliefs with absolute assertions of fact. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I think Steve is a perfect example of this. Uh, I do come down hard on him in in the editorial, uh, in the column. And, you know... What is he going to do? Have some alien kill me? Um, <laughs> I I don't I you know I I'm, I'm joking I'm I'm sure he's a nice enough guy, but you can't do that and expect to be respected by people in the field or that you're helping the work. Um, ego is a healthy thing to have to a degree, but it should not it should not be the driving force in your work. Um, if you are recognized for your contributions because they're valuable, wonderful. If you know you want to be a, a personality and a player and have power in the work, earn it in no uncertain terms, and not by saying that you know things that you really can't know, and we know you can't know. Yeah, yeah. That's you. You hit the nail on the head really squarely there with the with the with knowing. That's the problem. I, I've called it ufology's dirty little secret that we don't actually know what the UFOs are, even yep. though so many people say they know. Yep. And that's that's really uh, that's kind of where I part company in a lot of ways with the disclosure movement, just because it's like. You know, they jump to a lot of these conclusions without showing their work, and if they really know it, they should be able to show us how they know it, and they don't. So, you know, we're kind of back to square one. I've observed lately, too, that there's this schism, in a sense, where there are the people who are still doing the sort of nuts-and-bolts science um, research, trying to figure out the, the end result, you know, trying to solve X of what the UFOs are. And then there's the other people who are like, we already have enough information. Let's move on and, and press forward with trying to, you know, break the government and get them to tell us the, to, you know, to cheat almost, you know, without, without, you know, if we want disclosure, let's figure it out. And then the government won't be able to hold it back anymore because we'll have figured it out. You know, I, I like to see kind of a turn more towards that perspective. Amen. You know, it's, uh, well, it's frustrating in a lot of ways. It's really uh, frustrating because... I've talked about this on the show. It seems like there's this malaise of UFO uh, research in a way. But you, as I said at the beginning of the program, you've been in the trenches on this. You, you know, you talk to a lot of not just researchers, but but lay people and and you know we won't call them buffs, but you know enthusiasts, people that this is their this is their Red Sox, this is their uh, Lakers. You know, this is what they yeah, invest their time in. And, and you know what's What's the, I guess what's the perspective of of the everyday people? Because personally, I mean, I've been in this for like ten years, and I'm frustrated with the glacial pace of it all. Um, yeah. You know, so I can't even imagine wh- how some folks feel. Well, I'm I'm glad to say that I've observed more and more within the so-called world um, disclosure community that there are more and more um, just healthy, independent thinkers, and it's not like people are moving forward in lockstep under one philosophy. Right. Um, I think one of the most important things that the disclosure movement can do and is doing is individual by individual beginning to educate fellow citizens 
to the reality and implications of this subject. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I think that m- more and more people in the movement realize that no matter how hard they work to petition their government or our government to release the secrets it has, um, every government has a point beyond which it is either unwilling or uh, not desirous of going. Um, In our country here, it really hasn't mattered whether the leadership has been progressive or conservative, Democrat or Republican. It just is not an issue. This is an equal opportunity repression. And the paper that we were talking about earlier, uh, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, um, goes into a fair amount of character studies about well-known American politicos who did take the subject seriously until they were put in a position where they could advance in power um, or continue to take the subject seriously, at least publicly. And that's everybody from Jerry Ford to New Mexico Governor Richardson to um, President Carter to uh, President Clinton um, and on and on down the pantheon. Right. Um, I, I think that many folks in the disclosure movement now realize that um, no matter how many of us hold hands and you know say please give us your secrets, this government is never going to be forthcoming. Um, I don't mean to speak in riddles, but I have to agree with my dear friend and colleague that disclosure in that sense is simply not going to happen with the United States government and that it's inevitable. Um, I guess what I mean by that, at least in part, is that maybe it will come in the form of some kind of major WikiLeaks-type leak or for those old enough to remember uh, the Vietnam days, Daniel Ellsberg making public the so-called Pentagon Papers and Mm -hmm. that turning... Uh, to a great degree, the course of uh, feelings toward the war in Vietnam, or whether there'll be an event or events that will make it undeniable. Um, A question I'm asked fairly often, especially by, oh, you're a UFO researcher? Wow, that's wild. Um, So how come they don't land on the White House lawn? (laughs) Um, You know, my first thought is remembering uh, that great moment in the day the Earth stood still, the original, of course, where... Michael Rennie, the great British actor playing Klaatu, the very dashing alien, comes down the uh, walkway of his craft and pulls out this thing about the size of a pen and pushes a button and some things come out of it, and they immediately shoot his ass. Uh, He's surrounded by, you know, World War II-looking soldiers. Um, Welcome to the Earth. Uh, (laughs) And I I use a science fiction um, sort of device here because the real world has not given us a huge number of ways to look at this. I'm not really a science fiction buff. Um, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some great science fiction when I was very young and read Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and you know uh, was a fan of the very first generation of Star Trek, still am. Uh, never got interested in the ones that followed for whatever reason. And sometimes in great science fiction, you do find some things that make sense in terms of part of the dilemma and mystery here. Um, 
For example, Gene Roddenberry, the visionary genius behind Star Trek, one of the things he ascribed to, um, you know, the Earth people who travel around in the USS Enterprise and other ships is something called the Prime Directive, right. which was, in so many words, when you make contact and interface with another civilization, if their technical accomplishments are much less than ours, never ever reveal the sweep of your power and technology because their civilization will die. And that's based on um, anthropology models from like the 18th and 19th century when, you know, the British penetrated into the heart of darkest Africa or Belgian troops into the Congo for the first time and truly, you know, isolated native peoples perceived for the first time people who looked incredibly different, who had advanced technology, uh, especially that long stick that could explode and make a noise like thunder and kill a person or a pig, you know, 50 feet away. Um, These are gods to be feared, and um, there's an amazing account in the writings of Carl Jung about a meeting that he had with somebody that we might call a shaman, an, an African chieftain, who did discuss that time when he was young, when his tribe was first exposed to the insane miracles that these visitors brought with them. And in the process, his line was, our dreams died. You know, all of, everything that we had ever imagined, encountered, um, dreamt about, was blown out of the water. Yeah. So there is probably a reason that they are not getting in our faces overall publicly. Their way of working, and I, I think there are many different kinds of theirs here, is to reveal themselves to one degree or another to one, three, seven people at a time, uh, repeatedly over the course of many years. Um, maybe part of it is about creating a a base of X number percent, 7%, 4%, 8%, I don't know what it is, that would be um, sort of a tipping point in greater populations beginning to take it seriously. Damned if I know. Exactly. Now, we got a caller here on the line. You want to take a call? Why not? All right, 719 area code. So uh, that tells me uh, where is that. It's in Colorado. So someone in Colorado is calling in. Let's see. Well, all right. Let's get him on the line here. 719 Hello. area code. You're on the air. What's going on, pal? Hi, my name is Jay. Hey, Jay, how you doing? Um, you, uh, you got a, a question for Peter? Yeah, and this is actually more about uh, uh, the personalities that you've probably come into contact with over the years in the, uh, I, I don't want to call it the scene, so to speak, or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am a huge fan of Bud Hopkins. I probably read every single book he ever published. Um <laughs> Uh, and I also, admittedly, a pretty extensively streamer. I've read, I've read pretty much every book he ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some kind of falling out that happened between the two of them, and I'm sure you would have been witness to it, having known Bud the way, the way that he did. Yep. What was their point of contention? I've, I've always been curious about this. Well, that's a great question, Jay. Um, I was working with Bud 
very regularly at the time when Whitley kind of came into our lives. Um, I knew who he was because he was, you know, and remains a, a popular and well-known writer. But at the time, of course, he was known for anything but UFO books. Um, exactly. Um, I had read one or two of them, and I kind of put him in the same class as sort of a Stephen King, sort of gothic fiction. And Whitley's exactly. a good writer. And it was Bud who told me one afternoon, guess what? Um, Whitley Strieber has contacted me. It sounds like he has an absolutely authentic abduction account, and we're starting to spend time together. He is in a in a very troubled place, and I can talk about these things now. At the time, of course, it would have been completely inappropriate. But over mm-hmm. the weeks, um, I learned, among other things, that Whitley was suicidal, and um, People can be driven to that. I mean, again, this is no secret. He writes about it very eloquently in communion. And it was um, very upsetting to me. At the same time, Bud said that he is setting down his account in part as a way of um, therapeutically getting it out. Bud helped him find a therapist and ironically helped him find the illustrator for the cover of that legendary book, which certainly contributed to um, the impact that it had. And um, I should digress here for a second and say not necessarily in the way people might imagine that very specific, unique alien face, for lack of a better term, on the cover of the book was unlike anything that anybody had ever quite reported. And so um, we, after Communion was published, we began to get dozens and then hundreds of letters relative to that book cover and Whitley and Anstreber received I'm sure thousands at least um, of letters and they were all to the effect of you know I saw that that book in the bookstore or the poster and it stopped me dead in my tracks and I went in I had to read it and I bought it and I think I've had such experiences but the face that I associate with it didn't have a pointy chin, didn't have a nose, blah, blah, blah. In each case, they were correcting the drawing, which was based oh, really? on the artist's imagination as well as Whitley's report. Now, some, I don't know, very shortly, two months or so, a month maybe even, before the book was published, um, I got a call from Whitley, um, and it was at my home, and it caught me off guard. He very quickly said, I know that you know what's been happening with me, and um, frankly, I have finished the manuscript for this book, and I would like to know, uh, I had asked Bud if there was anybody that he would could suggest to me that could read it and give me some honest feedback who, number one, was familiar enough with the subject of abductions, number two, um, you know, was discreet enough to not discuss it, and number three would be honest with me and who had some appreciation of being a writer. And I certainly was that at the time. And would you read this manuscript? And very shortly after that, I appeared on his front door. He was living in a wonderful loft in lower Manhattan. And I um, had breakfast. I got the manuscript. They put me in a guest room. And for the next eight or ten hours, I did nothing but read that manuscript. Um, I thought it was very good. But I also felt, and as somebody who had been in therapy, 
um, for some years on my own, that this was still an incredibly raw nerve for him. He was still exorcising this. He was still seeing a therapist. And I felt if he if he just worked on it a little bit longer rather than put it, you know, get it into uh, his agent or publisher at that time, it might benefit from that. He thanked me very sincerely. And I think it probably went out to the publisher the next day and did just fine <laughs> internationally. But I, I'll tell you, and I'm, you put me on a bit of a spot here, but I'll rise to the occasion. Um, no, one thing I, I, I want to... The actual falling amazing. out, though, I never heard before. Yeah. I never heard this, that you were one of the first people to read that manuscript. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's and fascinating. It was, it was, well, it was, it was fascinating to me, too, and it was not lost on me because... Um, I understood, and, and both Bud and I said to Whitley, literally in person, you are aware that you are going to be attacked, have fun made of you, that you're going to become um, a target of ridicule when this book is published. Why? Because you are the best-known American writer to ever step forward and say, in my private life, this has happened to me. And Whitley got it, mm-hmm. and um, I, I I last saw Whitley last year. Um, I'm concerned about uh, Anne's health. She's dealing with a very serious form of cancer right now. Uh, in fact, he and I and Anne um, and um, Stephen Greer were on a panel discussion about the alien phenomena. Um, that was being moderated by Yvonne Smith, a wonderful hypnotherapist who specializes in this work uh, at last year's uh, International UFO Congress, and it was very good to see him again. It had been some years. But obviously he has continued his writings and um, his contacts with these other intelligences. Um, I've kind of lost some track of it. I've read some of his books since then, but he, he is a very prolific writer and uh, has a very active, you know, web presence, of course. I only wish him well. And, um, you know, um, for me, the falling out between Bud and Whitley was predicated on a perception that although Whitley was telling the truth and had had the experience that he describes in communion, that being an entrenched fiction writer that he may not have been able to resist some tiny little sanding off at the edge or smoothing down here or a literary device there that may have been slightly off the nonfiction mark. I don't know how else to say it. Um, well, I, I know writers who feel that a, a, a tiny white lie, if that's it, in the service of a great and noble truth is certainly acceptable. Um, that's something I, I I have a personal problem with, and I I'm, I again I want to make it very clear a, here that I, I think that yeah I, I think the book was truthful, but I, I did share Bud's concerns about that, and um, you know only Whitney Whitley knows. Um, I thought it was also made into um, uh, a good film. Um, I wish it had done better at the box office. But um, there were parts of the film that were extremely compelling, and I can only imagine what it was like learning that 
the legendary Christopher Walken was going to play you in a film. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. One of our favorites, right? Absolutely. Uh, Jay, we've only yeah. got about 10 minutes left here, buddy, so uh, I can't let oh, you go on I, too much. Thank you for the question. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, so thank you, thank you for the question, and uh, you know, thanks, Peter, for tackling that one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, good one. So let's talk a little bit, as I said to Jay just then, we only got about 10 minutes left. Let's uh, let's do some plugs and talk a little bit about what's coming up for you. Because well, you got absolutely. tons of stuff going on. Um, let's, um, let's First, let me throw out the website for the New England <laughs> UFO Conference, because that's, yes. that's our friend, our mutual friend, Steve Romani's big event. That's yes. October 26th in Lemonster, Mass., and that's neufoconference.vpweb.com. And we'll, we'll have links and stuff at Banal of America for that. Um, and Peter's going to be there, uh, Stan Friedman, Kathleen Martin, uh, Travis Walton, and another guy who was involved in the uh, fire in the sky. Steve in- Price, yeah. Steve, yeah. Yeah, um, basically, um, we have a wonderful event coming up in New England, and this is another example of a single individual who has really moved heaven and earth to make this a reality, and that is... Steve Fermani, who cut his teeth in ufology, not as a state section director for MUFON, but as New England um, director of MUFON. A lot more responsibility. Um, Steve, for me, is one of the hardest working and most modest people in ufology. He's been there behind the scenes for years, and it really is his time to shine here. And because of his efforts... I am pretty confident that we are going to have the first of what we all hope will be an annual event. Now, for those who are not familiar with the name Lemonster, um, uh, Massachusetts, it's not that far from Worcester, Mass., which you can find real quickly uh, on a map. And this is a one-day event, um, but a number of us will be hanging out for the day before, the day after, and really looking forward to making this a, you know, dawn till dark event, um, (laughs) which will be a lot of fun, as well as, I know, fascinating and educational. Um, I'm going to be speaking on updates on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, which is very timely again this month of October, being the 30th anniversary of the case going public. Um, Senior distinguished ufologist Stanton T. Friedman, retired nuclear physicist, um, and one of the most prolific people in this work ever, uh, is going to be presenting, as well as Kathleen Martin. Kathleen and Stan have written two books together, and I think are working on another one right now. Kathleen, for me, is one of ufology's secret weapons. You know, if you saw her on the street, you'd think, a uh, mild, unassuming, you know, uh, attractive woman who, um, you know, probably is involved in domestic chores. Um, <laughs> uh, Kathleen was really the central person for more than a decade in MUFON's efforts to investigate and codify information around uh, UFO-related abductions. And she comes to the subject not just with a background in psychology and education, Uh, and a brilliant ability to present. Kathleen is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, arguably the most famous abductees in history. Um, 
I saw, not that I needed to be reminded of it, I saw Kathleen and Stan speak last month in Maine, and they are both at the top of their form. Um, their presentations were riveting. Um, they, If you want to see two people do something as well as it can be done, uh, and to be educated while you feel you're being entertained, um, there's all the reason you need. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I always say to people interested in the subject, if you haven't seen Stan Friedman live, you're really missing out. It's kind of like the Rolling Stones or something. you got to experience it. (laughs) Exactly. And adding to what is now an all-star lineup, um, if you have never heard Travis Walton speak, um, and in this case, it's an opportunity for a very special uh, presentation, having Steve with him. Um, years ago, he did a number of speaking engagements with Mike Rogers, who, for anybody who is familiar with the film version of Travis's amazing book, Fire in the Sky, um, Mike was played by the character actor Robert Patrick right before he became super famous for kind of that liquid police officer Terminator in the first Terminator movie. <laughs> yeah. And has gone on to a lot of great roles, um, including um, uh, in the the Joaquin Phoenix uh, Walk the Line, the uh, Johnny Cash biopic. He played uh, uh, Johnny Cash's father. He's a wonderful actor. Um, But anyway, um, hearing Travis with Mike uh, years ago and now hearing him with Steve, I'll tell you, you could hear a pin drop in that hall. Um, we really hung on every word, and Travis Walton has gone from being someone who, when I first saw him 20-odd years ago, was not comfortable on stage, was not, and will never be a ham like me, who is, you know, gets up there and can yammer away for hours. Um, he is articulate to the nth degree, um, always compelling. He radiates integrity. He's just one of my favorite people in the whole work, and Steve is terrific. Yeah. Um, okay. That, that alone would yeah. be plenty of reason to come. We've also got Robert Schroeder and Mark D'Antonio, two very fine uh, researchers and investigators who will also be presenting uh, some surprises, and uh, it's going to be in uh, the historic Lemonster City Hall. Um, the town is very much behind this from the mayor on down, I know it's going to be a world-class event and something New England can take pride in. And um, so come if you possibly can. This is going to be one for the books. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know we have a pretty strong listenership in the Northeast Corridor. So folks who are in the uh, New England area, you definitely want to check this one out. at Once again, neufoconference.vpweb.com. We'll have to talk off the air. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it that Saturday, but I am free the uh, Friday, so maybe we can touch base yeah, on Yeah, I'll Friday be around. I'm coming in on Thursday and leaving Monday, so oh, definitely. Nice, um, nice. I intend to tear up the town a bit. And and, yeah, nice. Well, I, I'll be right beside you tearing it tearing up. Okay. <laughs> And, but yeah, uh, this is um, this is one. If you possibly can, please join me. 
Absolutely. It's going to be uh, quite the happening. And uh, you did mention to me uh, before the show you got a big conference coming up October 2014. That's one Larry Warren is organizing for uh, Liverpool, UK. And uh, we're, we're right up against the clock, so try and give us a, a quick thumbnail on what that's all about. Yeah, we are at the clock, it looks like to me. Um, this has just been announced in the past two weeks. We're very excited about this. Uh, once again, inspiration here is Graham Birdsall. Larry wants to have an event that matches the quality and production values of the great Graham Birdsall conferences. We have signed on some greats already, including Travis, including Timothy Good. Um, I'll be speaking at it. Um, Stanton Friedman will also be there, um, Richard Dolan, and others to be announced. And being in Liverpool, it will include some very fun stuff related to the Beatles. Um, the venue is a brilliant 19th century kind of amphitheater with a huge amount of seating, and we intend to pack that place. Again, we're talking about a year from now, and we'll be revisiting this on shows to come. Awesome, awesome. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about it. Maybe I'll finally get my act together and get back over to England and check it out. That would be great. Um, with all that said, Peter, I can't thank you enough for coming back on the show, joining us here on the live program. As I as I said uh, before we even got started, it's pretty much just like our normal conversation. So uh, yeah. it was quite enjoyable, and, and I can't believe this is, uh, you know, the, the two hours went by amazingly fast, so I, I really can't believe it. So thank you so much for coming on the live show. You're so welcome, Tim. Looking forward to future shows, and speak to you around the campus. Sounds good. Folks, let's get the plugs in here as we close out the program. Of course, if you just discovered us, we are Benal of America. You can find us at benalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. For the avid BOA aficionados, I'm happy to report that BOA 3.0 is nearly done. It's going to be online in the next couple of days. So head on over to Benal of America and check out the new layout and design for BOA. Also, if you're on Facebook, check us out at Benal of America on Facebook. I think we're really close to 1,100 likes now. I think we're five away. So whoever hits that 1,100 gets the shout-out at the end of the show. If you can help us out, it would be great. Make a donation via PayPal or the P.O. Box. You can find the address for the P.O. Box at Benal of America. PayPal is safe and secure, but if you don't trust them, you can send us to send us some help via the P.O. Box. On the next edition of the show, it's going to be a taped episode. It's going to feature two guests. I don't want to say who they are just yet because I'm going to talk to them on Friday. We're going to be talking about after-death communication. One guest has a personal story. One guest is an ADC researcher. We're going to delve into all that weirdness surrounding after-death communication. And a taped show also on October 30th. More info on the next episode. Thank you folks for listening. Have a fantastic evening. You'll be hearing from me in the not-too-distant future. <laughs>